hi everybody my name is Sarah Fitzpatrick and I am the health promotion officer working for GOSH so today on the podcast we're interviewing with Dr Sarah O'Connell who's an infectious disease specialist and a consultant working in the STI HIV testing clinic in Limerick University Hospital so you're very welcome to the podcast Sarah and thanks for giving me your time today so we're just going to discuss HIV and STIs. So I think I'm going to start off by just asking you, Sarah, a little bit about your role. Like, tell me a little bit about yourself and what type of staff are in the clinic and what are their roles? OK, so thanks, Sarah, for having me. I'm um, Sarah O'Connell. I'm a consultant in Infectious Hospital Limerick. So as well as looking after infectious diseases and general medicine, um, I provide governance and management of the sexual health clinics at University Hospital Limerick as well. So we have sexual health clinics at University Hospital Limerick and we also have outreach clinics in Ennis and Nina. And then we also have a separate um, in University Hospital Limerick. So in this specific clinic, it's a specific area and a unit which we're lucky to have. Um, and there's different types of staff working there. Well, first of all, is obviously to provide management um, for the patients coming to the clinic. But as well, a lot of my role is around developing the clinic and keeping up to date with guidelines. The newest up-to-date guidelines um, are used in the clinic so we can provide really the best care. Mm -hmm. And you'll be aware that in sexual health, there's been a lot of change really years. And so it's important that we keep moving. So I have, as well as a clinical role, quite a strong management role. And um, so the other staff in the clinic are, there's a uh, clinical and really she manages um, the clinic as well as myself, along with two senior medical officers. So these are um, doctors that work only and are specialised in this area. As well as that, we have some junior infectious disease doctors who work in the clinic. And we also are lucky to have staff nurses that are fully dedicated in the STI clinic. Lastly, but definitely not least, are our clerical staff. And these are really important in the STI clinic because this is often, um, it's an appointment only. Get, um, sometimes we can get a GP referral, but for the most part, patients can ring up and make their own appointments. So it's really important that the clerical staff are there to take these phone calls and we have an email address as well to keep people linked in. Perfect. Thanks, Sarah. I will leave links as well after this below on contact details of the clinic. So if anybody wants Great, to yeah. avail the service that they know, that's going to be there. Um, well, get, I'll get started on the questions that I have for you. Um, so a, a common question I get as well is um, the misconception of what is the difference between an STI and an STD? Um, so there's no difference, really. Um, so an STI stands for a sexually transmitted infection transmitted disease and sure we don't like the term STD or sexually transmitted disease or the old term like venereal disease because it sounds kind of horrific yeah for problems and so STI or sexually transmitted infection is more uh, it's a better term to be used now but to answer your question there's no difference really yeah and can anybody get an STI Absolutely, yeah. So by definition, I mean, anyone who's sexually active um, can get an STI. Yeah. 
And are people at a certain age more at risk of an STI or can you, so you were saying more or less you can get an STI at, at any age? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, you know, for the most part, it can be young and we know about rates of, for example, chlamydia in and the younger sexually active population. But absolutely, anyone can get an STI at any age. And actually, from experience, we see people of all ages um, coming to the clinic. And, and that's natural because that's what we would expect to see. And we do try to treat everybody the same and make sure that everyone gets the right. Yeah. And if I if symptoms were to come or what are the symptoms of an STI? I know I know as health promotion officer they can be there mightn't be any symptoms at all. But what is if there are symptoms, yeah. is there a time range or what could it be? Yeah, sure. So usually for the common um, STIs, we talk about, say, chlamydia and gonorrhea, and it would be very unusual to get symptoms straight away because there is a short incubation period of maybe, you know, a few days to a week. And the most common symptoms if someone was to get it would be pain passing urine. Um, there might be uh, rarely some pain in the testicles or some urethral discharge from the penis and the other thing is for example if it's men who sex with men they may have some pain in their back passage or discharge from their back passage as well um, rarely depending on the STH um, but this would usually be linked with urinary symptoms and um, for women then so sometimes people might notice some discharge or the other thing sometimes what people describe is um, sex or a small amount of bleeding after sex Okay. Um, and so, was, yeah. And the other thing just to say, of course, is that really when we talk about lumps and bumps, for example, or it's a common thing that people come in with as well, where they have the lump or bump that they're particularly concerned about. Okay. <clears throat> and what are the most common STIs in Ireland right now? Now, um, yeah, so I mean, chlamydia would be very, very common. And um, we've done screening of when I say asymptomatic population, so of um, university students, rate of chlamydia, particularly amongst females, um, which was quite worrying um, at, in universities, about 20%. So chlamydia is always very high. It always has been, but we do see rates of gonorrhea as well. And we also see um, a small amount of syphilis and that's increased in, in certain people, but we, we see syphilis amongst um, anyone sexually active would be at risk and um, so they probably would be three more common I suppose to say obviously warts are very very common um, and we do consider them an STI but they're so common that I think probably by definition warts are the most common STI. Yeah and would that be classed as viral would you get viral medicine to treat the warts is it? And by the HPV virus but yeah. for what how we treat them is by uh, treating the actual warts. Okay. Yeah. So usually it's cryotherapy or a cream, you know. Okay. And what should someone do if they feel yeah. that they could have contracted an STI? So say, for example, somebody had unprotected sex and they yeah. had a feeling the next day or two that they might have contracted an STI. Is there a time period that you should wait before mm -hmm. if you are to get tested or what action would somebody take? Yeah. So look, to be honest, we do should abstain from sex and the best thing is that they should attend for testing then and um, we usually say a two-week window in truth a lot of people are very concerned and we've asked 
absolutely want to come into the clinic a few days after they've had unprotected sex if they're having symptoms. And at that point, you know, depending on their symptoms, they can have their swabs taken. But even if everything is not have their swabs taken again at two weeks. Okay. But if um, someone wants to come to their mind at rest, by all means, they can come, yeah. Yeah, of course, because it can be very, very anxiety inducing, I can imagine for some people as well, if they're leaving something, I think it's like human nature just to leave something, especially the doctor, just to put it off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. If someone has an STI, do they have to notify sexual partners or is it personal choice? No, we it, it is best practice to um, tell partners. So what if someone has an STI, the nurse will talk to them about that and any recent sexual partners, then they should ideally um, tell them because, of course, that sexual partner may, may need to be treated. And to be honest with you, um, you know, while these infections are very common, rarely they can have serious side effects. For example, chlamydia can cause pelvic inflammatory rarely lead to infertility so you know it's really really important that everybody associated with the person with the STI gets a test and to be honest the clinic the nurse specialist they will always help if needs be around contact tracing but for the most part people are happy to contact people themselves and tell them okay so can you, Sarah, can you talk me through the process of STI testing here at the clinic? So say, for example, I decided, OK, I need to I want an STI test from the start to beginning. Who do I contact? Where do I go? What kind of swabs are taken? Absolutely. Do I need bloods? That kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so usually what happens is if someone feels they need an STI screen. It might be, might be just because they're worried. It might be that they were contacted by somebody and told, look, you know, we had sex a month ago and I've just heard I have an STI. So for that reason, they, they, they want to come in. So they heard that I know you might put a link to at the end. And then if someone doesn't answer, they can leave a message and the clerical staff will ring them back and provide them with an appointment to come in and have a test done. We can do it is there is a clinic email address and people can if they're comfortable it's a HSE email so they can email that and request an appointment that way as well so then the other thing is we do accept GP go to their GP first and explain their problems and the GP, GP can refer them in or rarely we get a referral you know for example um, from a hospital or something like that. then after that when someone comes in for their appointment when they check in initially the clerical staff will ask them um, some very basic details, but what we need is an up-to-date phone number in case of its results. And if they don't have a phone number, we might ask for an up-to-date email. And then after that, the person will be given a number. And really, they should keep that number on them for the future because they may have ice screens in the future and we store people for, for the STI clinic, they have a number. So after that, then, the um, patient essentially takes a seat and is called after initially. Um, to be honest, the doctor will ask, ask just some straightforward questions about when they last had sex, what kind of symptoms they have. For example, if it's a man or a woman, they have sex with women, or do they have sex with just women if it's a woman? And um, the other thing is they'll ask about, did they use condoms? They'll ask about things like, did anyone, have they had a hepatitis B vaccine? Um, and then just basic questions around are they on any other medication or any allergies in case they do need an antibiotic. Then to be honest, if someone is asymptomatic, um, we now 
nowadays they can take their own swab. So for women, they have they can take um, their own vaginal swab, but for men, depending, it may just be a urine test. So they're given a bathroom and give the urine test themselves. We'd may need to do extra swabs for men, depending on the history. And then after, once those tests are taken, so the thing is some symptoms, then the doctor will probably do a quick examination with the nurse um, and just if any, for example, sometimes we might need to take one or two swabs. And I wouldn't say compared to maybe 10 years ago where people were really worried about getting swabs done. There's nothing like that now. Okay. So uh, yeah, so then after that, um, and, and they get their bloods taken. So what we routinely test for, when I talk about swabs and urine tests, what we check for is chlamydia and gonorrhea. And when someone has bloods taken, what we routinely test for hepatitis B and syphilis. So they're the basic tests that get done. Sometimes we talk to people about vaccination, depending, and uh, even then sometimes people can start their vaccines on the clinic. Okay. And how long roughly would, so say I'm waiting for my test results, how long would it take and will I get a phone call or a text message? So again, depending on the scenario, but for the most part, it's a no news is good news policy. So okay. what we say to people, <laughs> Yeah, so we wait wait two weeks, and at two weeks, um, we know the result by two weeks, okay. and at that stage, um, they're phoned with the result if it's positive. Sometimes people might just be phoned because maybe the test needs to be repeated, like lab, or you know what I mean. Like there could be something like that. So what I'm saying is, if you get a phone call, you know, I, I wouldn't panic. It might be just that something needs to be followed up on. The other thing is that um someone needs more vaccines or if somebody really needs more follow-up or extra you know further testing maybe every three months or every six months then we'll be arranging that from their first clinic visit anyway you know so it all it all depends but for the most part um it's a no news is good news policy okay and say, for yeah. example, I contracted an STI um, and it was a bacterial infection, so I'd need antibiotics. Well, could I get an STI yeah. again or is that gone now for good? I, I, I won't get any more. <laughs> and get it again and say, for example, something very common like chlamydia. So, yeah. you know, we usually what happens is so people, if the chlamydia test is positive, people get a week of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. That um, unfortunately, maybe a few months later, someone is at risk of getting the STI again. Yeah. Okay. And then I was going to ask about so how how does the clinic deal with so say if an under sixteen accesses the service or feels that they have contracted an STI, how does the clinic go about that in your service, or does it depend on the situation? Or it depends on the situation, but we try to not turn anyone away. So what I would say there is we just really, really try to not turn anyone away. And by that, you know, they can by all means talk to the nurse and then we'll, we'll see what we can do and probably get a test done, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just a case of chatting with the, uh, with the patient and seeing, seeing what it is they need. And what do you feel are some people's fears of coming into the clinic or getting tested? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot, most people hopefully have had an STR, have had sexual mm. health screening at some time in their lives. Some people have had lots of screening and um, some people have had lots of STIs. Some people 
and it completely depends. And to be honest with you, the first thing I would say, what people are worried about when they come in is probably they might find it embarrassing to talk about their sexual history with yeah. often sure. Um, so it can be hard for people to talk about that. The other thing is then people worry about swabs. So particularly men worry about getting um, you know, their penis. And I suppose what I may not have articulated well earlier was that we really rarely need to do that now. Like it's mm -hmm. not part of routine testing at all. Um, so it's that, that thing and is something going to um, hurt. The other thing is that what people worry about is being examined. They find that embarrassing. Um, and that would be men and women. And most people, you know, would be a bit embarrassed and uncomfortable about that. Yeah. I suppose the other thing is people are worried about confidentiality. Um, and so we try to address that because of the number when people are even called in. They're called by their number and not their name. Um, and that would be the same as STI clinics around the country. So there's ways that we try to overcome that. And I suppose point the staff in the clinic are really experienced at um, treating STIs and seeing patients who may or may not have an STI and really are comfortable with talking about say, I understand someone might be embarrassed. Most certainly the staff members aren't embarrassed. And yeah. I suppose hopefully people can take some solace in that. And the other thing is from an examination point of view, the staff examining people um, on a frequent basis and wouldn't um, blink an eye you know so once people mm. are aware that it's something that's really common and should be done you know yeah exactly I think the staff as you said they're working in that area so they're well used to everything and they're comfortable and they're yeah they're quite understanding um, I have to say I've, I've, um, I've been in that clinic before just doing a little walk about and everyone's very nice and understanding so it's a really nice environment as well I have to say um, I have two little questions for you um, that come up a lot as well. Um, can two women in a sexual relationship get an STI? So you see, the thing is, um, it's a difficult question in a way be dormant or asymptomatic for a number of time, or do you know what I mean, for a mm. number of years. Yeah. So it probably makes sense for people to have a baseline STI screen, but after that that there is we, we don't really see um stis between women um if you know what i'm saying mm -hmm. so to answer your question i think people should just present and have an sti screen done and make sure that they're Sorry. negative you know and then take it from there yeah um and i was going to ask as well and um, this comes up a lot as well does the pill protect against stis no, not at all. No. Um, so no. Um, you know, the pill is obviously um, pregnancy um, and the morning after pill. So it's completely separate. Yeah. Yeah. I can see someone coming in on you there. It, it is a busy working day. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it, with podcasts? Um, and I was going to move on to a little yeah. bit about HIV. And um, I know it's World AIDS Day coming up on the 1st of December. So I think it was important just to cover a bit of that and to just bring awareness about it as well. Um, Sarah, what is HIV yeah. and what is the difference between AIDS and HIV? Okay, yeah. So HIV is, um, uh, I think, human immunodeficiency virus. So it's a virus that um, can be transmitted through sexual fluids and often through blood as well, um, for the most part. And 
so that's transmitted. Um, and then, so what we say is if the virus has been transmitted to someone, that it, then they have, they're infected with HIV. So they're infected with this virus. Okay. It's an older term that used to be um, described before, and it's called acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And what AIDS describes really is where the immune systems after getting really low as a result of having the HIV infection. So they're two totally different things because mm -hmm. somebody could have HIV infection, but their immune system at all. So we tend to not really use AIDS anymore. What we talk about is asymptomatic HIV infection, and then we talk about advanced HIV infection. Okay. And Atomic HIV infection was another one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And there's, I, f I feel like there's sometimes a misconception that HIV affects certain types of people. Is this true or can HIV affect anyone? No, not at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so absolutely. And, you know, we do see people from all walks of life. We see people who are heterosexual, who are, you know, who are men, who have sex with men. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we see people who have a history of IV drug use and um, rarely we see people who have come to the clinic and they've acquired the infection, how, how they got it. And I can tell you over the years that actually, um, you know, I have seen people from all walks of life and all ages um, present with um, HIV. The thing that's important to say is if you look like nationally every year at all the new cases of HIV infection that have been diagnosed, that um, unfortunately, people who are perceived to be at risk, like men who have sex with men or intravenous drug users, in most circumstances tend to get more testing done. So th thanks to HIV infection at an earlier stage, whereas the risk groups that are not perceived to be at risk, for example, heterosexual risk groups, unfortunately tend to get diagnosed later on. So what we see is those people, when they're diagnosed, have more complications of HIV at the time of diagnosis because they haven't been diagnosed early enough. Mm -hmm. And what proportion of HIV infection in some risk groups, like men who have sex with men, are drug users, to be, which we rarely really see HIV infection now in people who But um, 50% of the, about 50% of the new diagnoses every year are in the heterosexual population. Okay. So there's a disproportionate number of sex men, but at the same time, 50% are in the heterosexual population. I think people really need to remember that. And mm -hmm. um, so it's all about awareness about testing and, and getting tested, you know? Yeah, exactly. And so what is the treatment for HIV? I know that there is now PrEP what exactly does PrEP stand yeah. for? And yeah, what's explain the treatment to me for and for everyone who doesn't have a clue what PrEP means? And so we have, well, first of all, um, so antiretroviral therapy is the treatment for HIV. And if someone's diagnosed with HIV infection, almost straight away, um, ensure that people are put on antiretroviral therapy. And um, so PrEP, is a form of antiretroviral therapy, but it's not given to people who have HIV. Prophylaxis. So it's a low dose, one tablet once a day, um, form of antiretroviral therapy that people can take to prevent acquiring HIV in the first place. Okay. Which is post-exposure prophylaxis. And that's a different, that's a similar medication that is used within 72 hours after a high risk exposure. So for example, if 
because worried and um, it was considered to be high risk, then they could also take the medication after the event. So it's different to prep is different to PEP. Okay. So, yeah. So PrEP then is essentially one of one. So PrEP should be used for people who are HIV negative. And so we run a PrEP clinic. So what PrEP involves, it's more a planned thing. So if somebody, you know, is at increased risk of getting HIV, um, what they do is they come to the clinic, similar to appointment to come to the clinic. And they're given information about PrEP medication. They have baseline blood tests done and STI screening. Baseline blood tests will include HIV tests like hepatitis B and syphilis as well. Um, and then what we do is, and we check out other blood tests just because we're starting them on a medication. Mm -hmm. So then after that, um, get a prescription for the PrEP. And it just involves one tablet once a day. Mm -hmm. um, then there's two ways you can take the PrEP. There is the daily PrEP, whereby people take the medication once a day based PrEP, where people take the medication just around the time that they're planning on having sex. And event-based PrEP has been shown to work really well as well as PrEP. And I suppose it's less onerous on the person because they don't have to remember to take the medication every day. Um, and then what's really important is that as well that people come back to the clinic um, for regular STI screens and checkups um, when they're on the medication. So every three months is advised. Um, and the other thing we do for people who are involved in vaccinations, so we're able to do HPV vaccination and hepatitis A and B vaccination as well. Um, so we do all those at the clinic and we make sure that people who are on PrEP get all their as immune as possible as well to be protected, you know? Yeah. And are there, I know everybody's different and reacts to medications like differently, but is there any common side effects or of the PrEP medication or? Your brand, I mean, people tolerate PrEP really well and um, because it's just the one tablet once a day. What I find is when we give that to people who have, um, for example, HIV, when, when they're taking it every day, they might note a little, a little bit of lightheadedness or nausea at the start, but that usually tends to go away then. Rare side effects, we like to keep an, keep an eye on people's kidneys and the protein in the urine. Um, and so there are things that we check when people come back at their three monthly appointment. Okay. And finally, what is the most rewarding part of your job and what's the most challenging part of your job? I'd say right now with, um, with the circumstances, it's a bit challenging as well. I was going to ask you as well, are you operating fully or just due to the COVID restrictions yeah. in level five? Okay. Yeah, you're grand. No, we're, um, so I, we never obviously um, shut down completely. What we did was we, at the, around April time, um, we had urgent appointments and we continued to see people for anyone you know who, would see, who needed um, treatment or anything like that and um, but no we, we've opened back up to the degree that you know people are, if they need an appointment they're able to get an appointment um, we do have measures in the clinic like social distancing and we phone people beforehand to ask about any COVID symptoms all those processes are in place now um, so that's um, I suppose what's what's rewarding about my job I mean there's a lot of things that are rewarding I suppose at the moment it's that I mean I feel that the system 
septum STIs in the country. I mean, we're lucky that we have all these vaccines um, available to give to people. And we're lucky that we have a system in place where we can do and, and HIV care. And so it is very rewarding for people to come in and to be able to get a comprehensive package at that time. And um, that's not due to me, like that is something that's the training program and the process and the clinic, most of it was in place before um, I ever started. So I suppose what's reward, I suppose I just, I, I feel very lucky about that. Mm -hmm. um, and is that I do feel very, very privileged um, in the sense of, um, particularly with all the other in infections now at the moment and emerging infectious diseases, mm -hmm. try and manage, um, how would I say it? I mean, manage all the pathways in the hospital and manage everything as best I can um, just to make sure that, that, that you know. um, what's very difficult is that sometimes, I suppose the truth is sometimes we advise people on what we think is the best thing to do. Yeah. But somebody what it is that they want to do and really um, people, you know, understandably do what it is they think is best. Yeah. And the job to explain to people what the pros and cons of things are and then to let people make their own decisions. Um, but that can be very difficult. Yeah, I understand. it's like personal choice at the end of the day. Everyone is going to do what they think is best yeah. for themselves. I think even when you're even with health promotion, you can enable people to take control of their health and they can either choose to take on information or not. Yeah, that this is it. And um, yeah, and sometimes not, you know, sometimes what happens is that a lot of um, time and um, like we can, I suppose the thing is for us, like, I mean, we operate out of a clinic and we have outreach clinics, but we are dependent on people as well coming in to, and you know sometimes if people don't make their appointments or don't come to their appointments and sometimes that's an ongoing thing that um it just can be difficult sometimes to engage people you know where you really yeah well Sarah thanks so much for speaking to me today and I just wanted to add though I think um when people or if when individuals are diagnosed with HIV it can be quite a daunting time or a lot of people might need more support so I think gosh the service that we offer we have a personal support worker Anne Piercy who um, will support you if you need that support so I'll be speaking to her in my next podcast and we're going to discuss yeah. um, World AIDS Day as well and European Testing Week which will be from the 20th to the 27th November and we actually carry out as well um, rapid HIV, syphilis and hepatitis C testing, but the STI clinic in Limerick University carry out the full STI screen. So I'm going to give all the contact details for everything that we just discussed today just below the podcast link. And yeah, thanks so much, Sarah, for taking time to speak to me. And I'm sure we'll meet again. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thank you.